Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy Podcast. I'm Ashley Mueller. This week's episode explores some of the latest global issues affecting peace, security, and international cooperation. As reports across Asia linked to the coronavirus are released, we hear about how Asia is coping with the COVID-19 pandemic from Dr. Elena Atanasova Cornelius, Senior Lecturer in International Relations of East Asia at the University of Antwerp and a visiting professor of University of Kent in Brussels, as well as an Associate Fellow with the GCSP's Global Fellowship Initiative. We also look at Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa's long and complex relationship and we explore what mutual prosperity could look like with Ms. Fatin Agat Clerks, consultant for the African Union and business associate for the Mindelo Group. Dr. Atanasova Cornelis, thank you very much for joining us today here at the GCSP. What is the current situation in Asia with regards to the COVID-19 pandemic? I think that um, the pandemic has, to a large extent, um, exposed and even intensified the existing competitive trends, which which I have been uh, describing. Um, We see this escalation of US-China rivalry, we see in rhetoric, in mutual blaming, right, for the uh, COVID-19, United States calling it the Chinese virus, whereas there have been certain uh, Chinese statements suggesting that possibly the virus was imported to China. And of course, sino-US relations, this is a very complicated relationship uh, because they're at the root uh, of US-China relations. These are unresolved structural issues if we look from a perspective of the very different political systems, um, different values, obviously, that for the United States and, and for China, which have been at the root of this very problematic relationship. And then related to these, the different uh, aspirations and visions of how they see regional order in Northeast Asia, in the Asia-Pacific, or even at the global level. And now uh, with this pandemic, this has been really exposed, this competition for um, influence, even though we tend to often um, describe U.S. policy as isolationist under President Trump and indeed the rhetoric of the America First, even some statements recently that if there is a vaccine that would be first distributed to the American people, and there is certain perception that the United States is really, um, you know, losing out the battle uh, with China in terms of global leadership, um, I think that the United States under Trump is still continuing to emphasize the, the global U.S. position, both in Asia and at, at the global level, despite this perception of isolationism or maybe retrenchment. Um, Now, both, in my view, both US and Chinese leadership has been undermined in both cases by the uh, pandemic. Um, And that has led also the um, declining confidence, I would say, in both Asia and Europe um, in, in the capabilities, the ability of either the US or China to lead the world. So there has been virtually, of course, very little uh, international collaboration concerning COVID-19. There has been this growing international scrutiny over China's uh, delayed response or China's possible misinformation uh, concerning when the pandemic started, when China informed for the first, uh, about the first 
cases. And China, however, has tried to act as a responsible great power. This is very important for China's transformation of identity. China's rise as a responsible great power. Uh, we all have seen, of course, the high publicity surrounding China's donation of materials, uh, personal protective uh, equipment, masks, and other related equipment to countries, sending experts to Italy, uh, donating to countries uh, in Europe. Um, and this has been, I think, a way for China to shift a little bit the global attention away from US blame on China for the Chinese virus towards China's being acting as a global responsible power and China trying to contrast its own um, cooperative behavior right now with US inability to um, cooperate at the global level. For example, US deciding in the middle of the pandemic to halt US financial support to the World Health Organization, right? This has been presented, of course, by Chinese commentators as extremely irresponsible, where China has been the, the responsible great power trying to collaborate. And even now, this, um, uh, interestingly, the health Silk Road, something which President Xi Jinping announced back in 2016, now has become more important than ever, and China has been very active and trying to repair its image by promoting this um, international collaboration um, you know, on uh, dealing with pandemics, with infectious diseases, and in the medical sector led by China. This is yet another signal that the Chinese leaders are giving to the world, look how responsible we are. But of course, we have also the other side of, of the story on China, that there is a growing perception that China is kind of trying to take this somewhat um, advantage of the crisis, of the fact that the United States and all other countries are distracted, that they're dealing with the pandemic, um, with a lot of, well, of course, issues related to the pandemic, economic concerns um, in, in many of the countries. And there is a concern that China is using that to advance its interest in the South China Sea with uh, continuing reclamation activities. Also, with regard to Hong Kong, um, I would say that it's not a coincidence, in my view, that all of a sudden, right now, uh, you know, we have this national security legislation on Hong Kong that has passed, right? And also uh, with regard to Taiwan, over the past couple of months, we see increased number of military exercises um, uh, by China, bomber drills, um, and uh, Chinese first domestically made aircraft carrier also passing very symbolically through the Taiwan Strait to show to the world, to the United States, to Taiwan, that China has this resolve. So, Indeed, there is a perception that China is taking advantage of, of the situation, but perhaps so is North Korea, because again, over the past few months, as the epidemic and as the crisis has deepened, we see more uh, drills, more missile tests conducted by North Korea. Only in March, for example, North Korea conducted nine tactical missile launches, and as well as in April. So perhaps North Korea too is taking advantage of the world being distracted uh, due to the pandemic to advance their own interests. Um, and perhaps um, 
a few words on how in Asia uh, the pandemic or the, 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 the COVID-19 has been tackled. There have been quite, a, I would say, a divergence in different measures that have been adopted. You have had some countries, for example, the Philippines and Thailand, where we have had quite strict restrictions. And it is only now, after a number of weeks, that both Thailand and the Philippines are sort of lifting up some restrictions or curfews that, for example, in Thailand were in place. You had very limited restrictions in Japan. So in Japan, there was never a lockdown or a curfew actually imposed. Instead, you had an emergency um, a kind of situation declared and Japanese citizens were advised uh, to stay at home. And then you had, of course, the South Korean case where we did not have a full, fully-fledged lockdown, but there was a very aggressive policy of large-scale testing and contract tracing, which has to a large extent become, when I hear to listen to the debates in Europe, as a model for perhaps some European countries to follow. Is the security of Asia affected? If so, how? Some countries in Asia have succeeded with flattening the curve much faster. For example, Vietnam, because they adopted measures much earlier. Uh, also Taiwan, the Taiwan case, as uh, the Trump administration has been also calling the Taiwan success story, as opposed to the China story. So, uh, you know, the just juxtaposing Taiwan, the democratic Taiwan against non-democratic China in US narrative. Um, whereas other countries, for example, in Southeast Asia have been struggling, the Philippines and Indonesia. Indonesia, for example, still has um, growing numbers of infections, uh, unfortunately. And whether or not there has been any region-wide um, response, I would say they have been uh, meeting, online meetings, for example, between ASEAN leaders and Japan, China and South Korea, video conferences and certain agreements that there would be uh, more collaboration between Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, especially to um, ensure that the supply chains, so provision of um, any necessary medical uh, materials or food or other will not be blocked in a possible next pandemic or crisis. But to a large extent, we see really diversity in responses in when countries actually uh, decided to impose more restrictions and some countries even like Japan not even imposing severe restrictions in comparison to countries such as, for example, the Philippines. But I can say uh, that perhaps one of the, I guess, the outcomes maybe of the COVID-19 crisis will be the, in the near-term realization in Asia that there should be um, some sort of regional or sub-regional mechanisms, Asian mechanisms, that would be able to tackle crisis and disasters that have a direct implications for the Asian region, as opposed to relying on global leadership, which to a large extent is perceived right now as in a, unfortunately, steady uh, decline. Thank you, Dr. Atanasova Cornelis, for joining us today. 
Ms. Fatin Agad Clerks, consultant for the African Union and business associate for the Mandelo Group, shares about mutual prosperity between Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you for joining us here today, Ms. Agad Clerks. My first question to you is what does mutual prosperity mean and is it realistic? I think when we speak of uh, relations, particularly between Europe and Africa, uh, but also Africa and its relationship with the world, um, I think there is real space for mutual prosperity. And what do I mean by that? And let me perhaps illustrate that with specific examples. All the world basically will be aging, but Africa would not be facing that particular challenge because there is a youth, a young population. Now, one can say, well, a youth, a youth bulge is interesting, but the world is moving towards AI and, and new technology. So, you know, it's fantastic that Africa has young people, but there will be no, uh, no role for them as such in the economies. And what I often like to say is that robots will not be the ones who will pay for social security, for retirement, etc. We need humans who are working uh, to be able to do that and so that particular security can come from Africa uh, because of its young young population so it goes beyond uh, beyond the availability of labor not just for Europe but I would argue for for the rest of, of the world and in that sense I think there will there is space for uh, mutual mutual prosperity uh, for both uh, for Africa, Europe and, and the entire world. The other um, space, I think, where there is a possibility for mutual prosperity or a win-win situation for uh, Africa and its international partners, including, including Europe, is that Africa is one of the fastest growing regions in the world. It has some of the top growing, fastest growing economies worldwide and as such that can provide a an opportunity for international investors, for international partners to benefit from that uh, from that economic growth. So there are certainly opportunities. It's uh, a matter of uh, sizing them. What challenges or opportunities are there to mutual prosperity? I would say in terms of challenges, the key challenge, if you will, is to break away from the current mindset and start looking for opportunities for that mutual prosperity beyond the current frame that we are and have been used to for so long. Looking at Africa as a, an, a region where there are opportunities, a region where youth can uh, provide and cater for also interests of, of many partners as much as you know, Africa's interests uh, itself is, is important and we need to recognize that. Uh, we need to stop thinking of Africa only as a, a hopeless continent that requires help, but also a continent that can help and contribute to the prosperity of the world. So it's really, I would say, in terms of challenges, the key one is breaking away from traditional ways of thinking and letting go of old ideas, embracing new ones and embracing new possibilities. Now, the good thing is that the opportunity is there to move beyond that, uh, that, uh, that mindset. Um, I would say a lot of this, uh, this change is driven by Africa's own assertiveness. Uh, there is a new generation of Africans who are very clear in their head on what they want. In fact, just uh, last week there was a survey that was released uh, looking at how African youth uh, sees itself and sees its place in the world. And there's generally optimism. 
optimism in uh, in the way the the young population sees its contribution to the continent optimism about the prospects of youth on the continent but also with what we are seeing and which is extremely refreshing and extremely positive is that africans are assuming what i would call agency uh, they do see a role for themselves in their future and i think that is certainly an opportunity which we can uh, we can embrace we can work with as africans but also as as international community there was discussion at the last african union summit about a unified trade zone in africa what would that look like so African countries, 54 of them, have uh, signed up to the continental free trade area. 29 countries have ratified their agreement. The uh, ambition is to start trading under the terms of that agreement as per the 1st of July this year. And so what the African continental free trade area provides is um, for Africa, it provides the opportunity of connecting the continent. Um, it's important to recall that um, if one compares the composition of trade from the African continent to the rest of the world, there continues to be very little diversification in terms of the products. A lot of the exports continue to be extractives-based. Uh, There's very little uh, a space, I would say, to... Uh, to, to promote industrialization on the continent. Contrary to that, um, intra-African trade, as, as small as it is, we're, we're at the moment at 19% of trade being conducted within the African region, but the composition of what is traded uh, within the continent is very much different. What we see is that much more manufactured goods are being traded within the continent. So the space that the internal uh, market provides for countries is significant. Um, it's an opportunity to move from extractives-based exports to a much more diversified as such that, uh, that will promote uh, the uh, industrialization within the continent. It provides new opportunities for, for the private sector then to, to engage. Now, for the international partners, is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to tap into a market of 1.2 billion people. It's an opportunity to tap into a rising middle class on the continent that is interested in consumption. It's also an opportunity to provide space or to, to tap into a manufacturing capacity that will be provided by labor uh, that will continue to be much more affordable as other regions move into different uh, level, I would say, of economic development. So it can be a win-win situation, again, for both Africa and the international community, and one that uh, should be certainly uh, exploited. Thank you, Ms. Agad Clerks. That's all we have now for today's episode. Thank you to Dr. Elena Atanasova Cornelis for joining us, along with Ms. Fatin Agad Clerks. Listen to us again next week to hear all of the latest insights on international peace and security. And don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, follow us on Spotify and SoundCloud. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>